John chapter 6. As we look into the scriptures this morning, I'd like to begin in verse 25 as as a reading. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him... God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. A portion of the people who had been fed by Jesus on the other side of the lake have now followed him to Capernaum. No doubt there were others in Capernaum who had heard of the miracle and sought out Jesus as well, wondering if they could see another miracle too. But Jesus very quickly diffused the anticipation of more miracles when he said, Truly I say to you, you are not, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you, you had a nice lunch and you were filled. Jesus then warns the people of the eternal danger of working for that which will not secure life, but will end in judgment and punishment. He tells them to work for what will bring eternal life to their souls. It's an interesting use of the word work in this passage because the scriptures plainly teach that no one can work in such a way as to please God or secure his blessings and forgiveness. Human works are futile in obtaining salvation. The scripture is very plain on this. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 are the most familiar probably in this regard. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing, your own doing. 
But it is the gift of God, not a result of works. Now, how much plainer can you be than that? It is not the result of works, lest anyone should boast. I've heard people say, well, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't boast. <laughs> yes, you would. You'd boast, I'd boast, everyone would boast if we had the ability to secure salvation through something that we did. We would boast of it. That's, we would say, that's why I'm here. 2 Timothy 1.9, he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Titus 3.5, he saved us because, not because of works done by us in righteousness. We had no righteousness to do any works with. Over and over again, this is, this is declared by God that no one can work their way to heaven or to have salvation. The chief point of using the word work is to show the seriousness and urgency of spiritual things over earthly things. Arthur Pink writes, the word work signifies that men should be in deadly earnest over spiritual things, that they should spare no pains to obtain that which their souls so imperatively need. The people connected with the word work, but they connected with the word work based upon their idea of the law and keeping the law. They believed that if they kept the law, did law works, that they they could perform and earn a place in God's kingdom. Their spiritual understanding of what Jesus is saying is darkened. And they cannot hear and they cannot see the truth behind what he's saying. This is reflected in their next statement. They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Notice how many times the word do is used by them. What can we do? What do we do? Well, that's a common question. Uh, When the jailer ran to Paul and Silas, what did he say? Tell Tell me what to do. See, it's, it's in human nature always to want to do something. We think that if we can just work our, our work, then surely God will look down and be pleased with it. It's the question everybody wants answered. <clears throat> what must we do? What can I do? In one respect, it is a legitimate question. If there were something that I can do to get eternal life, then just tell me what that is so I can get it. Well, you have to, you have to be able to uh, run from here to Becker and back without stopping or having a heart attack. Or you have to be able to uh, at least walk across this room. You see... 
It's crazy to put deeds that human beings can dream up to have salvation because they make no sense. None of them make any sense. This is the same question that has been asked over and over again in Scripture. Matthew chapter 19. Behold, a man came up to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good deed must I do? In chapter 10 of Luke, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test and said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Acts chapter 2, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They are really asking, what work can I perform? They had been taught by the religious leaders that they had to work for their salvation, that they had to merit some level of goodness to be in God's kingdom. And it's no different today. People still think that the good is weighed against the bad, and if the good outweighs the bad, you're in, and if it doesn't, you're out. That's the way people think. So people gauge themselves and their lives by those that are worse than they are. I'm not as bad as such and such over here. I mean, after all, he he beats up his wife and and... Runs around getting drunk and I don't do those things. So I, that's, that's good. God's bound to look at that and say, well, you're better than him or you're better than this one or this is the way people think. What, what work can I perform? You ever heard anybody say, well, you know, I'm a lost cause. I'm, I'm too evil. I've been too, I've done too many bad things. God couldn't save me. They're thinking, they're really thinking, I've done too much. See, it's all a matter of doing with people. And you and I can get caught up in that too if we're not careful. We can begin to think that certain things that we do, God is pleased with, and we, he, we get more, more grace or something from Him because of the things that we do good, and so we can start patting ourselves on the back saying, look how religious, look how spiritual I am. Look what a good Christian I am because I'm doing so much. When in fact, God is not impressed with our doing. He does not need our doing. The answer to their question is this. You can do nothing. That's the answer. You can do nothing. Salvation does not come from human works, human achievement, or human morality. We have all become like one who is unclean and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. That's the description of us. All of us. For by works, no, by, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
You can do nothing to gain eternal life on your own or by yourself. No one can be righteous enough to merit salvation. For Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All. Every one of us. Every human being on the face of the earth. Speaking of the Jews, Romans in Romans chapter 10, Paul says... They were ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You see, part of doing is making yourself feel like you're righteous when in fact you're not. So what does it mean to submit to God's righteousness as Paul says in Romans 10? Or, uh, well, Romans 3, he talks about the works of the, of the law. He says, all have fallen short of God's glory. So if you back up to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, he says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So when you back up to the righteousness of God, you see that it's found in Christ and it becomes a gift that he gives. And every single individual has fallen short of that righteousness. So falling short of God's glory is explained in Romans 1.23 that fallen man has exchanged God's glory for images of more, more mortality, which is, by the way, my own image and your own image. We exchanged that, the glory of God, for our own image. We looked in the mirror and we liked what we saw. And we said, I'm going to work for that. And we exchanged the glory of God for the glory of ourselves, which is simply idolatry. We were made to love and be satisfied with God. But when we looked in the mirror, we said, I'm going to love that more than God. We don't, we don't say that consciously with words. We say it in our minds, in our hearts. We devote more time and energy to our image than we do the worship and devotion for God. And that is the essence of sin. The result of this sinful exchange is Romans 6.23. We fall short of God's glory. We miss his standard. We miss the mark. And we try to do it ourselves. This is what the Jews were saying to Jesus. Every religion in the world, hear me carefully, every religion in the world is a do religion except Christianity. The message of the gospel, that's why the message of the gospel is so hated. Because it means you must surrender your doing for simply believing. 
And people don't like that. It, these religions are comprised of people trying to be righteous but never achieving it. Righteousness for the Jew had become something accomplished by their own effort. Faith didn't even enter their minds. Belief was not part of it. These people have totally misunderstood. So Jesus gives them the answer to the age-old question in verse 29. This is a, listen, this is a gesture of pure grace that Jesus would tell them this. They don't even deserve to know the answer, and we didn't deserve to know the answer either. But he gives it to them, verse 29. He said, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. You want to know a work? It's not a real work, it's just believe. It's not your human effort that can do it. So the grace of God is revealed to them. The answer to their question of their sin problem is standing right in front of them. This is the work of God means that this is what God requires. He requires that you believe in him who is sent. Just believe in Christ. Faith in his son is the only way. But what does that mean? What does it mean to believe? It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a particular thing that has been misunderstood, I think, over the years of Christianity. What does it mean to believe? It's the Greek word pistuo, and here's what it means. It means to accept, to trust in, to rely upon, to commit oneself to or rest in someone. Or something. I can. I can believe in that chair. I can say I believe in that chair. And maybe I really don't really believe in it. If I never sit in it. If I don't commit myself to it. But. If I say I believe in that chair, then I should be able to walk over and, and put my whole weight on it. Just relax in it. Rest in it. You see, that's, that's really the picture that we have here of faith, of believing. You, you, you trust what Jesus says. You believe what he tells you. You place your confidence in what he tells you. And you commit yourself to him and rely upon him to carry it out. They were being challenged to place themselves in Jesus' hands for the salvation of their souls. That's what they were being challenged to do. You want to know what the work of God is? Believe in me. That's what he was saying to them. Just believe in me. 
Jesus dispels any misunderstanding about redefining what it takes to get into God's kingdom by turning from and keeping some ordinance or doing some work to a declaration of belief in God's appointed Messiah. The one whom the Father sent. The one on whom the seal of God was. How did they know that the seal of God was was on him? Had they not seen him healing their diseases? Had they not witnessed him breaking the bread and creating uh, food for everyone? By this time, no doubt, the disciples have told everyone how he walked across the sea to them on the water. So they said to him, I find this next statement such a such a, almost a slap in the face of the Savior. Notice what they said. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? <laughs> After all he had done in healing their diseases and feeding them with the bread... As an act of creation, they still want to see something more spectacular. They must have been irritated with his answer and immediately demand a sign or a miracle. John Calvin writes, this wicked question clearly shows a truth of what is said elsewhere, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign. You know, the Jews required a sign, but Gentiles seek wisdom. But you know, there are a lot of Gentiles in our world today who are seeking signs. When there's no need to seek them, we have everything we need right here in this book. We don't need to see miracles or signs. We have it all. They must not have been satisfied with the miracles on the other side of the lake. But that's the problem with with miracles and signs, uh, temporary things. They only last a short while. And then you've got to have something else to replace it or something else bigger. That's the problem, my friends, if I could digress for just a moment, with this whole business of having uh, this pragmatic view of, of church, bringing entertainment in and, and lights and smoke and, and dances and you name it, it's been done. Now they're bringing drag queens into the church. Where does it stop? It doesn't. If you're going to go that route, you have to, every every so often, you have to ramp it up again and have something a little bit flashier, something a little bit more entertaining. Because people are never satisfied. They're never satisfied. What more could these people have asked for to to understand that Jesus is who he said he was? 
Even Moses and Elijah and Daniel could not demonstrate a command over the natural forces of creation as Jesus had done. The problem with miracles is that they create a craving for more miracles. I get these cards every so often in the mail. Miracle service. Apostle so-and-so or prophet or prophetess so-and-so. Oh, give me a break. Why not just stand up and read the Bible? Do a lot better. Just read scripture. Read, just read the Gospel of John or something or Ephesians 1 and 2 or rather than go through all the games. You know, but even false miracles are better to many people than no miracle at all. They just want to see something. This is what they said. What miracle do you do that we can see? The word see is there. We want to see it. People don't like to acknowledge something they can't see. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying to them. These people are spiritually blind and what they want is something they can see with their physical eyes. But like physical bread, that quickly disappears. Their anticipation is on edge. What is he going to do next? They've seen the miracles that he did before. And they're now, they're now baited and eager to see more of them. What will you do next that we may see? This wicked statement of unbelief was present throughout Jesus' entire ministry. Even all the way to the cross. Listen to what Mark 15 says. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe Him. All the way to the cross, they're saying the same things. We want to see something. We want to see something. And every time he did something miraculous, we want to see something more. Remember, they're in the synagogue at Capernaum throughout this chapter. It is entirely possible that the scripture reading for that day may have been Exodus chapter 16 verses 11 through 36, which is the account of God providing manna in the wilderness to feed Israel. Could it be that that's what prompted them to speak about Moses and the manna? Our fathers, he gave our fathers manna in the wilderness to eat. There are a number of passages that speak of this. Psalm 78, verse 24. Psalm 105, verse 40. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 15. It could have been any of those Passages that were read that day that would have sparked this idea of Moses and the manna in the wilderness. In their minds, Jesus is claiming to be greater than Moses and to be the true bread from heaven. Well, if so, he had better display a greater miracle than that which Moses did. That's their logical thinking. 
And in verses 32 to 34, Jesus corrects their misunderstanding about the manna in the wilderness and reveals the real meaning of it. And there are four serious misconceptions that they had about the manna. First of all, they misunderstood who had supplied the bread from heaven in the wilderness. Jesus said, it was not Moses that gave you the bread from, from heaven, but it was my father who give, gives them the bread from heaven. Exodus 16, verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Moses was simply God's spokesman. Moses had nothing to do with the supply of bread, but they thought he did. Second, The manna was not the true bread, but only a foreshadowing of the true bread of God that came down from heaven. In other words, the manna was just a picture of what God was going to do for Israel spiritually. He provided bread for them to eat so they would not starve, so they could live. And now God has provided the true bread So that they can live eternally. In fact the word true in verse 32 means that which is real or authentic. As opposed to something false. Or with some kind of imaginary imagery. Or as a substitute for that which is real. It's used seven times this way in John's writings. He speaks of the true light, the true worshipers, the true sayings, the true virtue, or true vine, the true food, the true God. Over and over he uses this word true, which means authentic, real, the real thing. This emphasis on the true bread from heaven being Christ is used in verse 38, verse 50 and 51, and verse 58. That's why this is called the discourse on the bread from heaven. The bread of life. Third, they misconstrued the purpose of the manna. It was to sustain physical life, but the bread from heaven would give and sustain spiritual life. Notice the word gives. Verse 32. It is present tense, showing a continual action. God does not just give life. He gives life constantly. That means that every day that you live as a believer, God is giving you His life. Over and over and over again, He gives you life. And it's his life. And he has given it to us. God the Father is always giving the true bread to those who believe. And that bread constantly gives life as a a possession for believers. 
John chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Same way with the word have. It is a present tense word which indicates constant receiving, constantly receiving. God doesn't just, in other words, God doesn't just save us and then send us on our merry way without, you know, well, now you're saved, you go about and live your life. That's not the way it works. God saves us initially and gives us life, and then he keeps giving us life over and over again. And he will do that for eternity. It'll never stop. John writes in chapter 20, verse 31, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have or be constantly having life in his name. Fourth, and finally, the manna in their understanding was only for Israel, but Jesus said the true bread from heaven was for the world. In other words, it's not just for Israel. It's for the Gentile world as well. God offers salvation to the world at large. For anyone and everyone who will believe. It does not matter where they're from. Or what their ethnic background is. Or the color of their skin. Or their gender, which by the way is only male or female. All who will believe in Christ through the gospel will have as a possession the life that the true bread gives. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 13. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God doesn't distinguish one from another. He saves all who will believe on Him. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 4 to 6. When you read this, you can perceive in my insight to the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it is now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles our fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is what Jesus is saying. He gives life to the world. He is the true bread from heaven that feeds the starving souls of lost people. He is infinitely greater and far superior to Moses. And that's what the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says in the end of his, uh, in, in his writings, 
Hebrews 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And the son is always greater than the servant. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And what is our hope? Our hope is in the one who came down from heaven as the bread of God who gives life to the world. Has he given life to you? As I look around this room, I think, you know, I look at each one and I think, uh, yeah, I know, I know all of you pretty well. You all, you all profess to know him, all profess to receive life from him. And I believe, based upon what I know about you, that that's true. But you know, there's always, there's always someone. The Jews' wicked desires are exposed and their ignorance of the Old Testament scriptures are evident. And we will see that they will flatly refuse to believe in and feast on the bread of life when it is freely offered to them. And that's the thing about the gospel. We don't just... We don't pick and choose who we give it to. We give it to everybody. Because we don't know we don't know who God is going to save and who he's not. All right, we continue we continue uh, in verse 34 next week on through and we're coming up on some very Controversial passages, so don't miss them. Don't miss them. Because you'll be asking questions later. I know, I've, I've been here before. All right.